Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 323, recorded Valentine's Day, February 14th, 2023, and I am Brian Ockin. I'm Michael Kennedy. Hi, I'm Pamela Fox. So thanks, Pamela, for joining us today. So for people that don't know who you are, can you introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Pamela, and I currently work at Microsoft, where I am a cloud advocate in Python, which means that I figure out how to get stuff working on Azure while using Python and make sure that, you know, our code samples are nice and Pythonic and that we're doing things the Python way and just trying to streamline the experience. And uh, and yeah, that's really fun because it just means I get to write Python all day. And actually, it just means I deploy all day. I'm pretty much always doing something, <laughs> which I, I guess is appropriate. I once had an ex- uh, an ex-boyfriend who n- named our Wi-Fi network Don't Stop Deploying. And the password was, I like to ship it. And I guess it's because I deployed so much back then. So I guess I've always been a deployer. So it works. Um, but yeah, that's what I do now. Before this, I was at UC Berkeley teaching Python. And then before that, I was at Khan Academy and Coursera and all sorts of places programming in Python and JavaScript. Ooh, neat. That sounds like such a fun job. I've always thought that developer advocate would be really cool because you get to do all the cool coding tech stuff. You don't have to run so much production software, so you're not on pager duty, and you get to travel and talk to a lot of people. Like, what else could you want, you know? Yeah, I, I think for, for you two, it probably would be a really good job, too. It's it's an, it's always just a really nice combination of programming and using the other parts of your brain, too. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Well, we're happy to have you on the show, so thanks for being here. And unrelated to Pamela being here and working for Microsoft, this episode is also brought to you by Microsoft for Startups, but we'll talk more about that later. Brian, should we kick it off? Yeah. While we all love to be in this tech space and you know we're all big fans and that's why we're here, sometimes you just want to get away, right? And especially in the American West, there's a lot of places that you could get away to. The camping sites around here are magnificent. There's one that I really like that has free roaming peacocks that just cruise through your camp while you're camping. It's, it's really nuts. And eagles flying around. However, that and all the other places are super hard to find for this exact same reason. Okay. So one of our listeners, uh, me, um, oh gosh, I don't see his name here, but Justin, uh, Justin is the name here. Justin Flannery from Denver, also a great a place with great camping, put together this cool CLI, this terminal uh, app called um, Camp Camply. So Camply is the campsite finder. It's a tool to find campgrounds and campsites that are typically sold out through recreation.gov and Yellowstone and other sites. Okay. Okay. So, you know, it's all Python. So the idea is basically you, it, it talks to all these different APIs. You can either run it in Docker or just run it in Python, I believe. PipX install Camply, which I love it. PipX is exactly how CLI tools that are not part of your programming story should be installed coming from Python. And so you would say like Campley recreation areas dash, you could do a search like dash dash search Glacier National Park. Or have you ever wanted to stay in a fire lookout tower in California? How cool would that be? Uh, that'd be pretty neat. <laughs> Depends if there's a fire or not. <laughs> yes, exactly. Well, <laughs> if there's no fire. So maybe... Maybe not September. I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> so you got a glacier and a fire, so maybe you let's, just use let's them to counter each that. other. Exactly. <laughs> Have you ever wanted to go down a really long ladder to use the restroom? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you're so practical, Brian. So practical. 
Anyway, these things are not uh, super easy to find potentially. So you can say, I'm looking for campsites in some area, start date, end date, and search forever. And it'll just sit there and just wait and, and hang out. <laughs> so it'll search at recreation.gov, Yellowstone, going to camp, Reserve California, some other places. And yeah, it'll just sit there and um, you know pull that data for you. And yeah, I think it's just a really cool app. It's a, a cool use of Python and you know people, if they're interested in... Okay. Going camping. The bit about this that I like is it has configurable notifications for if it finds something. So if it find if you're looking for a particular campground and you just got it running in the background, you can have it hooked up to give you a Slack notification or an email or even a text message through Twilio. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's pretty darn cool to be able to just have it, you know, text you when you find something. Yeah. Just kick it off. Let it run. Let it keep watching. Yeah. Yeah, is it a cron job? How does the search forever work? I think you leave it. I I don't know for sure, but I think you just leave your terminal running. It must have uh, must have a sleep or something. I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You would hope, otherwise it's going to get banned pretty soon. But no, I, I would think it just pulls every so often. I think it's doing. I think there's some APIs in here. If you look through, um, it talks about where the the data is coming from. You know, um, there's a recreational information database from recreation.gov and you know it's it's pulling some of that data and yeah i do think it's really cool that it also um, does those different notifications i've just learned about push bullet and push over and realized i should probably figure out what those are those sound cool i know what twilio is um yeah and the other, one of the things i like to like about this uh, is this could be like a SaaS app or something like that and yes, but I'm glad that somebody, but you don't have to, if you have like a cool need that works for you and you think somebody else might have a need for a similar thing. So build something like this and share it. Um, it, you don't necessarily have to make money off the back of it. Um, there's a lot of, uh, it's, it's one of the things I'm trying to be pushing more is software developers have these skills that we can build things like this, but a lot of people don't. And being able to build things and share things is one of the great pleasures of doing what we do. So uh, kudos to Absolutely. Justin. Yeah, yeah. Well done, Justin. Thanks for sending that in. And one of our listeners, Kim, also been on the show before, points out that, you know, he's from South Africa. You should try camping in some places in South Africa. Free roaming rhinos and elephants are slightly more concerning than peacocks. Yeah, I'm I'm impressed with, with people that live in places that have, you know, free roaming rhinos or pretty much all of Australia, all of it. Yeah. <laughs> Very impressed. It's a lovely place, but I'm, I'm always a little nervous to be like out of the city there. Anyway. All of nature wants to kill you in Australia. I think Exactly. And it's good at it. Yeah. All right. Off to you, Brian. Okay. Wow. I'm not sharing anything yet. So just Whoa. one moment. Share screen. <laughs> Sorry. All of the people were listening and waiting for this. Um, okay. We've got fancy readmes. So um, everybody loves you. <laughs> Hinnick points out that your fancy project needs a fancy PyPI readme. Of course it does. It's very nice. There's lots of stuff. So what sort of fancy stuff would you like? So um, I, one example is um, the Black readme. So uh, Black is one of the ones that uses the same project that we're, we're going to talk about. But um, so what's fancy about it? It's just got it's the normal standard readme stuff. But one of the stuff it has things at the bottom is it's got uh, change log listed here and the authors and some other stuff. The highlights from different versions. How do you do that within a readme without copy and pasting? So that's where this comes in. So the uh, this this is a project called Hatch Fancy PyPI Readme. And uh, Hinnick has used, uh, apparently in the past, 
setup.py for generating for uh, packaging. And with that was uh, the ability to do some code while you're running setup.py. Uh, but pyproject.toml-based stuff is different, right? So if you just have a flit thing and you point it to readme, it'll just point to a static readme. You know, or you can have generators outside of this. But what this what this tool does is it has um, apparently there's a hook system within Hatch that allowed allowed this functionality. So um, there's configuration that you can do things like and there's configuration on this readme to tell you how to use it and everything. But the things you'd want to use with it is these little fragments. So you can add a text fragment, of course, but uh, you know that doesn't really help you much because you already have you can write it, write it down in your readme. Um, but this this is a uh, Actually, what this is, is this will be part of your, it's in conjunction with pyproject.toml and um, and your readme to, to work together, which is cool. So you can define some of the text fragments in your pyproject.toml and have them show up in your readme. You can also do files. You can say, hey, I want actually want the author's file in there also. And the files um, have a start after and start before and stuff. So some of the files that you include in there might have some boring stuff that you don't want to include in there and you can cut that out. So this is really exciting to be able to, um, cause I've switched like all my project to pyproject.toml based projects, but I, I do want some neat stuff in my readmes. So, uh, I'll start using this as well. Okay. So you have files. Um, you also have pattern matching, which is neat, uh, with files, but then down below substitutions. So you've got like, uh, search and replace patterns that use uh, regular expression substitutions. Um, and then I think that's all. I'm not missing anything, but um, some pretty neat things that you can do within your readme. So, Yeah, and you got a CLI interface. It's it's lovely. It's almost like Jinja, Chameleon, some some templating language for your, your readme. So here's the thing that I am always confused about is, do you, you know, there's the readme and then there's the read the docs, right? And sometimes when I go to a package, I'm like, which one should I go? Like, mm -hmm. should I start in the readme and then see if there are more read the docs? Like, so this blurs the line even more. It's like, should should it just all be in the readme? When mm -hmm. when, do, when do you go to you know the external docs? Well, okay, so I've struggled with this on a couple of things, and I've got one that's like on the line. It's got a ton of functionality, and so maybe it ought to be a read the docs thing. But some people have really big readmes. So which should you go to? Well, well the packet. So are you talking about the package maintainer or the person learning about the package? Where should they go? I, well, I think you have both those questions, right? I like because one thing is I can't decide where should I link to. Should I link to the PyPy page or should I link to their read the docs mm. page? Right? What's it's just what is the canonical yeah. documentation? And right now, I think as both a creator and uh, a, a user of packages, it's not clear where to go. Well, as a user, I always try to start at the PyPI uh, page and whatever, hopefully there's either a homepage, it's got like black has homepage and changelog, you can include a documentation link to. So if it's just got a homepage, it's just probably the, um, probably the readme. Uh, but the documentation, I, I think it's nice if people leave the, uh, the homepage to go to their GitHub repo and add a documentation link mm -hmm. if they've got to read the docs. Thing, I think so, but um, I but do like to see a lot of stuff in the README because it's if you're already there, it's you don't have to go track it down. the The time that I would see Brian maybe is if there's like a lot 
a lot of different scenarios. Here's this API function, and here's a tutorial, and here, you know, maybe there's a lot of navigation, I guess. Maybe it makes sense for read the docs. Or if it fits on one, one file, then maybe make a copy. I don't know. And I've got a lot of like tiny little PyTest plugins that I'm just not going to do a read the docs documentation tree. It's just a little tool. So small tools, yeah. it's easy. It's the in-between part that it's difficult. So I don't know. Yeah, for sure. All right. uh, I love our audience. They all have great things to add here. Henry Schreiner uh, says, GitHub dependency graphs now support PEP621 as of yesterday. <laughs> so how's that for keeping on top of things? So perfect time to switch. Uh, if you haven't yet, nice readme's too. And then Zero says uh, docs. Um, the docs link should always be at the top of the readme. So excellent. That's yeah, I like that too. So yep. And one more piece of real time follow up. Justin, author of Campley, is in the audience. Says yes. Uh, wait, no, wrong, wrong one. I got a got out of sync there. Uh, thanks for featuring this. You can leave it running in the background. That's where the accompanying Docker image is from. So you could just push it over to a Raspberry Pi and just let it cruise there, which is okay. kind of cool. Yeah. So if, just to figure out, make sure I understand this, if you close your laptop while a Docker image is running, is it yeah. going to keep? It's probably going to stop. Okay. It depends so on So that's why you sleep. want the Raspberry Pi? Yeah, yeah. Something you can just leave on. Um, or, you know, something, I guess you could set your laptop to still running if the clamshell it's closed, but generally it would it would close. You could even put it onto one of those little tiny uh, Adafruit things, I would imagine. I doubt that there's anything that um, platform specific, probably just requests and stuff. So, Or you could have anyway. a Mac Mini running. <laughs> yes, you could definitely have a Mac Mini running, like the one I'm using right now. All right, before we move on, let me tell you about our sponsor this week. So, as I said before, this episode is brought to you by Microsoft for Startups, Founders Hub. I'm here to tell you all about a fantastic opportunity for startup founders, especially those interested in AI. With over six figures in benefits, this program is a game changer for startups. You'll get $150,000 in Azure credits, so you can work with Pamela a lot to deploy many, many things, which is the richest credit offering from any cloud provider. Founders Hub is offering a unique chance to access OpenAI's APIs as well as the new Azure OpenAI service so you can easily infuse generative AI capabilities into your applications. The team at Microsoft will also provide you with one-on-one -on -one technical advice to help you with architectural plans, scalability, implementation best practices, and security. Plus, you'll have access to the network of mentors plugged into the startup world, which we've talked about a lot. A huge asset for building your network. The best part is the program is open to everyone and has no funding requirements. Whether you're in idea phase or further along, it just takes five minutes to apply and you'll get all these benefits. So harness the power of AI in your startup. Sign up for Microsoft for Startups Founders Hub today at pythonbytes.fm slash foundershub2022. Link is in your show notes. No brainer opportunity for startup founders, so don't miss out. And Brian, one more thing, just to make the point about how awesome some of these open AI APIs and different things that they're offering here is I asked that same AI to write this ad for us. So <laughs> how cool is that? If, I mean, if you want to do, I don't know if you've played with these things yet, but open AI is really incredible. And if you want all these credits to be able to work with it, access to AI, uh, different APIs that maybe don't, people don't all have sign up at our, our link in the show notes. So thanks to Microsoft for supporting the show. Nice. And thanks to OpenAI for writing a cool ad for us. 
Wow, I still don't have access to OpenAI, and I work for Microsoft, so I guess I just need to apply for that program. Exactly. I've been where's waiting. Your, where's your startup idea? Get get in the game. All right. <laughs> this next one comes to us from Pamphil. Um, well, wait. Oh, you, go ahead. Don't we have one from Pamela? How did we? How did I skip that? Yes, we absolutely have one from Pamela. <laughs> Sorry. If, all right, sweet. So I'm going to talk about something new in PyDide. I know PyDide has been on the show before. PyDide is Python for the browser uh, based on WebAssembly, a port of C Python to WebAssembly. Now, the really cool thing, I've been using PyDide for various projects for a while, but the very cool thing that happened recently is that there's now 3.11 support in the latest. So in, in main, nice. there's 3.11 support. This was the PR for it. And so it's not in stable yet. It's in latest, but that means you can tr actually, you know, add uh, try it out in their little REPL here. Uh, I can't pick up 3.11 code off of that, but this you can see it says 3.11. Um, and what they're working on right now is, let's see, they're working on some benchmarks. So they did some benchmarks here to show, you know, there's, because 3.11 has a lot of speed up uh, improvements. So they did a bunch of benchmarks here, but it looks like they're also interested in other benchmarks as well. Yeah, it so looks like some are getting faster though, which is really cool. Yeah, and I also, so I did my own benchmark. I mean, I wrote a function called benchmark, so it must be a benchmark, right? So one thing that I use PyDide for is recursionvisualizer.com. This is something I built when I was teaching Python at Berkeley, and we taught a lot of recursion in Python, which I know is a weird thing to teach in Python, but this is academia, so we teach recursion in Python. Um, so this is a tool that uses... PyDide in order to visualize the call graphs. Um, and so, you know, when you're doing recursive functions, they can take actually a long time. Superior trip 10 is actually going to take a while. Uh, here we go. We got it. That wasn't that bad. Uh, it's, oh my it's, gosh. It's a bit long. Uh, here amazing. we go. <laughs> so I, um, I, I, I enabled 3.11 for this uh, yesterday in my uh, local branch and did my own little benchmarking and it's like 15% faster, which is actually relevant for recursive functions because some of the recursive functions that you run here can actually take a long time. You know, all you have to do is increase this parameter a little bit more and it really, uh, it takes a while. So it definitely, it is definitely faster uh, for at least this, this use case here. Um, so that's cool. Uh, it's not yet in the stable, so you can see what they're working on here. It should be in the next release of PyDot 0.23. They're working on that. Um, so I also tried it out in my other tool that uses PyDide. So this is disthis.com. <laughs> so this is a way to disassemble Python code in the browser because I love the dis module and I want everybody else to love it too. Um, so disthis.com and, um, the thing that I was able to do with this because of 3.11 is that 3.11 has the specializing adaptive interpreter, which uh, actually replaces certain opcodes with other opcodes uh, when it sees that it's hot code. So if something, some code has been run, you know, at least like eight times and it's doing some particular operation that it can optimize, it actually replaces the bytecode. So uh, we can compare this to this and you see that when we have the adaptive interpreter it's using different opcodes than it used before uh, and it's also got this cache here uh, so this is cool that now you can you can actually see uh, 3.11 and see the difference in how 3.11 can work versus 3.10 
Uh, so I'm yeah, impressed. I thought this was really fun. This is amazing. And your visualizer for the recursion is is really cool. <laughs> it yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's really cool. So this one, the, this uh, disc this, and you know, props for good naming there. That's funny. <laughs> but wow, you even get the adaptive interpreter in Pyodide. And yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. Really so cool. in order to do this, so I I put this together yesterday since I wanted you know something cool to show. So to do, if you want to have the um the if you want to have the latest Pyodide, if you want to try it out, if you're like me and for some reason have a huge number of iodide projects. <laughs> I'm sure you all are. Uh, you just have to do slash dev, right? So instead of a hard version number, and of course you shouldn't do this if you're using pyodide for something production, but I don't know who's using pyodide for something production. Because to me, pyodide is all about um, a great way for building educational tools in the browser. I have no desire to replace JavaScript with Python. I think you should use JavaScript if that's, you know, just trying to make an interactive site. But for making educational Python tools in the browser, PyDide is not, it's so good, right? We yeah. don't have to run a sandbox server. Um, so you, if you want to try out 3.11, you just do slash dev instead of a hard version number. Nice. Yeah. This is very exciting stuff. Um, what are your thoughts on PyScript? Have you played with uh, any? Right. So isn't, I think PyScript is exactly what I don't want, which is trying to replace <laughs> JavaScript, right? As far I as I understood, be, I haven't yeah. played with it. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, think it, I think it might be. Although I think also... It may offer some some interesting alternatives, right? Like, for example, if you've got a um, a progressive web app, or you've got an Electron JS thing, and mm -hmm. you want to write Python more locally, uh, you know, um, I think some of these are, are kind of interesting options. Yeah. So for educational see. tools, for dev tools, but we really need. I mean, we already even with JavaScript, we're making websites that are not very performant, even yeah. with JavaScript. And when you bring in these Pyodide, a Pyodide is huge. It's a big old bundle. You shouldn't be like just. <laughs> YOLO downloading Python, <laughs> like yeah, downloading C Python into your yeah, web page, right? It's definitely too big for that. That's for sure. All right. Also, I'm I'm super impressed. There's a lot of our guests will say, "I found this cool thing and it was really neat." But you're like, "Oh, I wanted to create this amazing website to demonstrate some stuff of a new feature." So, well done on yeah, on this yeah. and other things. That's that's awesome. Cool examples. Yep. All right. Yeah. Very cool. We'll we'll definitely put those links in the show notes for people to to go check out. All right, Brian. Now. Should I go? Now it's your turn. I, I can't believe I almost skipped all this amazing uh, stuff. All right. So going from really fun to slightly less fun, how about we talk about European law? Is that good? So, <laughs> sure. That sounds exciting. This, yeah. There's this, um, the this oh, what is it called? Let me pull up my notes here. There's the Cyber Resilience Act, the CRA, which is a proposal to hold... I think the most important part is to hold companies that write and ship software liable for sh knowingly being really negligent about shipping vulnerable software. So, for example, you sell a router. It, it's like a, some cheap knockoff router. You support it with updates maybe once, maybe never. It has some huge vulnerability that people take over your home network if they run it you know, RCE, remote code execution, really, really bad. You just don't bother to fix it because eh, it's not worth it, right? We don't want to We don't want to worry about that. And I think that's the idea of this is to say, companies that do that, no, they can't sell us a device we put in our house or we put software systems that we put into our hospitals and just don't care about fixing them from a security perspective, right? Not from a, a not working so well perspective. However, the concern that Pamphil Roy pointed out and sent this over, and that's why I'm talking about it, is there's a concern that that also applies to open source. So 
if I made some open source project, somebody adopted it, there was some vulnerability in it, am I now facing you know fines and punishment from the European Union because I didn't patch my silly little program? So there's this uh, organization called the Open Source Initiative, and the let me pull up my little highlights here. It says this uh, this Cyber Resiliency Act is an interesting, important proposal for European law that tries to drive safety and integrity for software. It proposes the proposal includes a requirement for self-certification of suppliers of software to attest that they conform to it for security, privacy, and the lack of CVEs, critical vulnerability events. However. The European Commission has framed an exception for open source, but they say, we've been doing this for a long time, drawing on two decades of experience. We can clearly see the current text will cause extensive problems for open source. Since the goal is to avoid harming open source software, we really need to make sure that certain wording of this basically gets replaced. So the thing I'm linking to is um, the feedback from the open source initiative around this uh, project submitted by Simon Phillips. So people can check it out and see what they think, but there's a lot of things out there that are well-intentioned that have unintended consequences. And I'd hate to see open source get squashed because, you know, people are afraid of the security liability of it, basically. Yeah. Is this um, related to that lawsuit against the crypto open source authors where they're trying to get lots of money from them, claiming that they should be able to recover their tokens. Interesting. I, it might have been inspired. I think it's more of a general, kind of like the GDPR, a general uh, mm-hmm. law coming, proposed in the EU. But mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty, pretty interesting. It's, it, there's a lot of stuff up in the air. We've got, you know, the GitHub Copilot lawsuit, and, and we've got the um, Stable Diffusion lawsuit with Getty. You got this kind of stuff in the U.S. Everyone seems bent on destroying um, Section 230, which is the protection to allow people to post their own stuff if you moderate it. It's we'll see where it goes. I have no idea what's going to happen with these things, but they're kind of a lot, lot of stuffs up in the air. And here's one more bit. There. All right, Brian, over to you. Uh, um. Okay. So <laughs> that was deep. So I know. So I told you we were going from a really fun thing that Pamela did to like, oh, here's some law. Well, let's go to something really simple. Single quotes or double quotes on your strings? Um, so uh, let's do a quick poll here. Uh, Pamela, you got a preference? I, I had to figure this out a couple of days ago because I've been trying to make the Azure samples more Pythonic and by running black, but black changes all the, uh, what does it change? It changes single I don't to double, even know. right? Single to single double. To okay. double. I'm not totally sure. It changes sure. all so. the single to double, but it's such a big change. And I'm like, it's so arbitrary. It doesn't matter. So I undid that change. Luckily, there's a black option that you could do, which is like ignore string normalization. So yeah. I, I now run it with that because I actually, I don't have, I, mean, I think the only reason I would tend to do single quotes is that in case I was embedding HTML, I really want double quotes in HTML. Of course, mm-hmm. that means I'm a bad person that's embedding HTML in my <laughs> Python. So. <laughs> There's other reasons too. So, but, um, well, a similar. Okay, my, Michael, do you have a preference? I think I prefer single quotes because it's one fewer keys to press on the keyboard. Yeah. Oh, and, yeah. You don't given, have to do shift. Given that I have, <clears throat> excuse me, that I have RSI issues and I got to be careful mm-hmm. of, and I have my 
super cool Microsoft ergonomic keyboard that makes a massive difference. But I still always am thinking about what I, what can I do to like type less, do yeah. less with my hands and accomplish the same thing. But I have an exception and it's similar to Pamela's but not exactly the same is if I'm doing anything where I want to put a, a quote. So if I have to say it's the second day of the week, then I want to put an apostrophe for the it's and I don't want to backslash that. So I put double quotes for the string so that I don't yeah. have to escape the single quote, but if I was using double quotes in the string, then I would put single quotes. So I don't like, so I, if I'm using one that I'll use the uh, inside the string, I'll use the other. So I don't have to use escape yeah. characters. So that that's the, like the argument that black has for why they chose the double quotes, I think is because of the, uh, the apostrophes. Um, uh, but I'm not really writing a lot of prose within, if I'm writing a lot of prose, it's usually, it's a triple quoted swing string and it doesn't matter. Um, yeah. usually cause I'm, I'm doing a block thing. Uh, but so this article is, uh, so single or double quotes in Python. And this is coming from somebody that came from R and came to Python and similarly wanted to make sure they were doing things Pythonic like, mm-hmm. and they ran across people using black, um, and you know what to do about that. So they looked into it a little bit more and like, you know, what is, um, what's pep eight say? Well, Pepe say that doesn't say anything about this. And th- I don't think this article goes into it, but the, the other thing, uh, not just Pepe, but if you try out Python itself, the REPL, if you define a string in uh, in the REPL and then like X equals hi there, and then say, what's the value of X? The REPL uses single quotes. So that seems Pythonic to me, unless we're saying the REPL is non-Pythonic. So the... <laughs> The real answer in this this uh, article is it's up to you, um, but it kind of isn't because people use black in their projects, uh, and there's a lot of people that are black fanatics, uh, and and uh, nothing against them. I'm kind of one of them as well. So me personally, I I am kind of a mix. So I use black on almost all projects, and I use um, uh, but I just type it in as single quotes and just let black fix it for me, uh, and. And so the, the the RSI is solved and Black's happy. But mostly it's just I don't want to make that decision on a lot of projects. But there are some projects that uh, there's a lot of quotes in there. And it really, or the tradition, or there, there's a ton of code already there. And so I wanted to point out that this, this I guess, is a public service announcement. If you're not really into Black or just this part of it, just uh, I Black is a great idea, but I just don't want to go with double quoted strings there's blue so everybody just remember there's blues around uh blue is just like black but uh there's three primary differences uh the single quote um it's defaults to single quotes instead of double quotes so for projects where it really makes sense to use most of the time single quotes um and there's a i have several that that um we're sending strings to other apis and it's just tradition to use there's other parameters inside that use double quotes and they can't be single quotes inside. So they have to be, it's the, anyway, I'm, so there's projects I use blue on that for that. The other thing is black defaults to the line, uh, line length of 88 characters, I think, which is a little weird. Um, I know there's logic around it, but it's still a little weird. And if you're going with pep eights or the, the traditional 79, I don't think Pepe specifies 79, but a lot of people use 79. So blue defaults to 79. And the other thing that I like is it preserves white space around hash marks. So if you've got comments along the right side of your code, like in multi-lines, and they're lined up by the hash marks, black will strip that out and says, ah, you only want, you only need two spaces there. 
and blue says you can align over there that's fine um so those are the three differences so blue is pretty cool i like it yeah pamela use blue black <laughs> yeah um gosh there's too many Not options I'm just, i i am waiting for rough to implement formatting and then i will have only one tool that i need <laughs> yes. to use for everything because rough now supports uh eyesore and pi upgrade so we're just waiting and charlie says he's working on formatting so i'll just do whatever rough does rough yeah, is rough awesome is, yeah. yeah rough is really cool um some interesting angles from the audience uh, I, I think we're throwing out here However, if you want to fix this, if you think black should use single quotes, just do a PR. I'm sure they'll accept it. <laughs> Here, <laughs> the thing like, no, we have, we, we've decided. Uh, Kim says, if you write both C and Python, you'll learn to stick with double quotes or you'll wonder why C doesn't work. And um, yeah, so basically David Poole says the same thing. Like if you're, if you're working in a language that treats or doesn't support single quotes for strings, like you might, you might want to. It's not the only thing. I keep trying to write printfs in my Python code. So <laughs> you do. Oh, you're so old school. I use C out less than less than <laughs> <laughs> for my C plus plus style there. All right. Yep. All right. So uh, who we got next? Uh, Pamela. Pamela. This weekend, I decided that my personal website is over engineered. Uh, so my personal website is pamelafox.org and. It's, it's super over-engineered. So right now it is a Docker, so it's containerized. It's a Flask app running inside a Docker container on Azure Container Apps with a CDN in front. Um, <laughs> and uh, and it pulls the data from a Google spreadsheet, an authenticated Google uh, spreadsheet. So all this data is actually from a, a Google spreadsheet. That's okay. cool. So it's a little over-engineered. And part of the reason it's over-engineered is because I ported it from App Engine Python 2.7, so like old school App Engine, and I was trying to port it to Azure. And I, so I was using Memcache 4, and I was trying, so that's why I put a CDN in front. So anyway, I realized, you know, it's not that fancy of a website, and the data only updates like once a month or something, right? So why do I have this whole Flask, uh, Flask app that's just running all the time using up cloud resources? So I wanted to be less wasteful, and I also wanted to try out static web apps because I feel like everybody's talking about that all the time, at least around me. Yeah. So I was like, okay, how could I make this into a static web app? And people recommended various things in Python like uh, Pelican and Lector. Um, but I already had this Flask app. So I was like, there has to be an easy way to do this for Flask. So I found this frozen Flask um, and it takes a Flask application and turns into a set of static files. So you just put in this code here and then you just run this and it'll create a folder and put the HTML files in there. And it just does it by looking at the routes and then looking at all the URL4 and then recursively following URL4s until it thinks it gets it all. And then and then you can deploy it. So uh, you could deploy to, you know, whatever static web app. So I deployed to Azure, but you could also probably deploy to Netlify or, you know, wherever the cool kids deploy Get, their static web apps. GitHub Pages, Netlify. Yeah, so if you do GitHub yeah. Pages, then you do have to check it in, right? So that's the only yeah. thing is if you did GitHub Pages, you'd have to check it in. So now I see one of the advantages of using something other than GitHub Pages, because I usually use like Recursion Visualizer, Dish This, they're called GitHub Pages. Um, but I wanted to see, oh, what's it like when you're actually not just using GitHub Pages for everything? <laughs> Um, so I thought this was cool and it's, it's not a recent thing, but the thing that's relevant is that it recently, um, lost its maintainer. Uh, so in December, 
there was this pull request where the, the current maintainer, the most recent maintainer stepped down. So it currently has no maintainers. So that makes me sad. And maybe somebody here would to maintain it. Because uh, to me, it was a very useful project because I was able to, here's the pull request, right? And the pull request does way more than I actually had to change. Um, but, you know, I was able to do this freeze and then, you know, set up some infrastructure and boom, I've got a static website and I didn't have to do a big old port to Markdown and Pelican and, all, you know, all sorts of things. So I think it's a cool project. It could use a little love today on Valentine's Day, some maintenance love. So yeah. that's what I wanted to wanted to show it. So I like uh, Kim's comment uh, saying, um, surely personal websites are supposed to be over-engineered. It's how you learn what not to do in your employer's production environment. <laughs> yeah, no, I know. And I'm so, I, you know, I'm glad I over-engineered it, but then I saw the bill. I was like, I really do not need to be paying this much for my personal website. So yeah. I did, I did learn. Yeah. Uh, thank you, Kim. Yeah. So um, my personal stuff's on uh, NetLib. It's a, a Hugo running Hugo as a generator and then running on Netlify. Um, and it's all free. So I like that. Um, mm -hmm. But I like the work. It's mostly the workflow. So the workflow of like, I want to write something new. What does that workflow look like? And right now it's write a markdown file and commit it and push it. And that's it. Um, so I like that workflow. Yeah, for me, it's I update my Google spreadsheet. I'm debating I might move it to a JSON file um, uh, because, you know, then I could have like a CI that just makes sure the JSON is well formatted, maybe something like that. Uh, but I'm kind of a freak for spreadsheets. So I've been using a Google spreadsheet for 15 Spread years. Spreadsheets for website content? I, I, actually, I love it. It's so, it's so amazing. <laughs> You've got to have overflow wrap though on some of those uh, columns, I'd imagine, yeah. in the spreadsheet, right? <laughs> Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, this looks like a really cool offering or a cool library for people who, for whatever reason, have a website written in Flask. And it doesn't have to just be for a blog or a personal site. It, you know, it could be someone's built a Flask site that for like an e commerce type of thing or some marketing type of thing. And they realize, you know, we don't really change this. <laughs> we haven't changed this in a year and a half. Why do we need to maintain servers and patch things? Right. No. We could just. But the, and this is a, a this is kind of a neat project that somebody for somebody to take on as a um, new maintainer. So yeah, You're looking to level up your open source game. <clears throat> How about extras? We got all of our main stuff done. Um, Pamela, do you have extras? Um, the extra that I was going to mention was already brought up in the chat was the fact that GitHub dependency graph now supports pyproject.toml, and I think maybe Henry brought that up. Uh, yeah, mm -hmm. Henry brought that up in the chat. Um, uh, but I was going to show, wait, where's my, uh, okay. So uh, I found this Python package template from Microsoft for somebody at Microsoft. So if you're starting a new Python project, this has like everything in it that's done the proper way, including the pyproject.toml or, okay, maybe not proper, the way that they think it, it could be done. Um, so if you use this, then, uh, you know, then the GitHub dependency graph should uh, should pick up on on uh, your dependencies. So that was that was my extra thing was just to talk about the pyproduct.toml with the dependency support now. Okay. No, that's that's big news. Very good one, Brian. I'll have to go take a look at that and see what all I disagree with. <laughs> yeah. um, uh, I was just oh, they have a source structure. You're you're halfway there to liking it. Um, that's good. So uh, I just cur was curious what everybody thought. I don't know if this is new, but I just saw it. The pricing structure for GitHub. 
is this a new thing? Um, I don't know. Uh, so 40, like the individual user gets extra stuff for $48 a year, essentially. 40, it per, it's not per month, it's per year. So that doesn't seem terrible, but what do we get? I don't this, so this is basically the free tier is just always the you still get everything for free, um, but the uh, co-pilot is what ten bucks a month or something. So, so there's some extras that you can add on to other things. Um, uh, I was when before the transition or whatever a couple years ago, I was paying for GitHub Pro so that I could have private repos. Um, now you can have a private repos with the free one, so I switched to the free. Is there? What do you guys? Uh, Michael, do you have an opinion on this? Or? Uh, I guess I have an opinion since I pay GitHub every month uh, <laughs> for the TalkPython organization. Because if you have an organization and you want to have people in your organization like TalkPython authors, then you have to pay to have them, which is different than an individual having a fr uh, private repos and things like oh, that. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that looks interesting from the team perspective is the code spaces, which is basically a built, you know, a server to run your code on. Right? Is that right, yeah. Pamela? Yeah, but why are they? This is what I, I actually just opened it up to look at that particular point and expanded it because you can. I use GitHub Codespaces constantly on free, and you can use it on free as well. So I'm trying to understand what the distinction between the free and the team is for Codespaces because I'm also a Codespaces freak. Looks like on um, free you've got 15 gigabytes max. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. You, have the you, thing you can the just pay. pay for a little bit more. I just pay because mm, I go over. <laughs> Uh, yeah, and more C cool. CICD. I mean, I guess I, I'm getting to the point where a lot of these extra things like uh, app, uh, GitHub Actions and more complex GitHub Actions and uh, basically I'm doing more. If I ever hit some of these limits, I think I'd be happy with paying. Uh, yeah. So. $48 a year is not the worst subscription that I pay yearly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's stuff I use way less less and pay more <laughs> for. So. Oh, yeah. Anyway, okay, that was just my extra. I was just curious about that. So. Okay, I've, I've got a couple as well for us. Okay. Our transcripts are way better over here now. So if people are interested in you know using the transcripts, which we have for every episode, uh, not entirely unrelated to OpenAI stuff, we have way better transcripts. Like, for example, um, even when Brian said pyproject.toml, it got that perfectly right, nice. which is... Amazing. And that means our search, we have search that doesn't just search, you know, some people's search on their site, like for podcasts and stuff, just searches the show notes. Our search is the every spoken word, right? So if you looked for chat GPT um, and Pi Project, something like that, then check it out. We're also live streaming, by the way. But there it is, right? That one, which neither of those, I believe, were listed in the show notes whatsoever. So because we're getting much better, like tech words, in our search, in our transcripts, that means our search should be way better for people who try that out. Anyway, so how did you there. make how did you make the transcripts? What did you use? Um, some of the the OpenAI API stuff over there. I got uh, a cool Mac app that like plugs into that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, sure. it's pretty. It if if you need something that will make your your Apple Silicon Mac that normally is cold to the touch, and you put it on your lap, you're like, oh, that thing's a cold laptop. You want it like a heater. You can you can try to generate one of these transcripts. It'll it'll be warm for about half an hour. All right, and similar, not the same thing, but somewhat related is the AI chat wars. I think are really taking off. And I watched uh, an interview with Satya Nadella, CEO of Microsoft. He was just relishing. He was just just 
completely sitting back and smiling and rubbing his hands like, oh, this is this is going to be good because, you know, Microsoft and OpenAI have that partnership. Uh, I'll leave it at that. I guess there's probably a little more complicated with part, partial owners and credit anyway, but they're working very closely together. And so Microsoft announces that Bing is going to have chat GDP integration as part of its results. And you can actually talk to it and GDP four, I believe, not just the one that's out. And so as a result of that, like that day, Microsoft Bing rockets to the top of the App Store after announcing ChatGPT integration. Like, when was the last time you were like, oh my God, where is Bing? I've got to get it. You know, this is just not something that has been happening lately, right? And like, boom, overnight, it switches. The converse is the same day, maybe the next day, I think that's the same day, Google shares drop $100 billion after the company's AI chatbot flops in the dough. So contrast those two things, and it's going to be an interesting next year or so in the, the big tech space. Mm. Yeah. So Wacky. anyway, those, I, that's just, uh, put that out there as something interesting, um, to check out. Also, uh, I worked with the folks at JetBrains to get our students at TalkPython training, a free copy of PyCharm Pro. So for folks who want that, this only works for new users. It doesn't work for renewals, but if you don't have a PyCharm Pro account already, uh, then just visit the link and and you must be a customer at TalkPython Training. That's part of the deal with JetBrains. I can't just hand them out randomly. Anyway, if you are, there's like a little statement of what it needs. But for many people, they can just check that out and get a free copy of PyCharm Pro, which is fun. And, and if, you finally, don't, if you're not already a member, just go ahead and uh, purchase the uh, PyTest course. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think the PyTest course, this guy named Aachen wrote it. It's pretty good. <laughs> people should check that out. Yeah. Uh, the mobile apps last time or time before last, I mentioned I was looking for someone to help me rewrite that. The the flutterification of of our mobile app story is is well underway, and that's so. Um, thanks thanks to the audience for helping uh, get that going. Yeah, and then very last thing, Brian is uh, I did a Talk Python episode in the behind the scenes at the Lawrence Livermore National Laboratory with the folks how Python was used to do the fusion ignition breakthrough that we all heard about like a month and a half ago. Um, wow. That Neat. was a big deal. So Python is a super important part of that, turns out. And uh, I interviewed Jay uh, Solomonson. He's down at the bottom because of responsiveness. But great story. Look inside uh, that whole thing. So people should check that out. I think it's kind of a, a unique story that uh, this was in the news a lot, but not this aspect of it. Cool. Whew. All right. That's all my extras. <laughs> so was the, we, we usually do a joke, but we forgot our joke last week. Was was the Bing story the joke or <laughs> no? The Bing story is real. We have we have a, a couple of good jokes, I believe. Yeah. Okay. Uh, it's for some, let me pull them up here. Uh, I think you've got one as well, but let me put my stuff back on the screen. So I didn't know it. we were supposed to have jokes. Oh no! We, we normally we just have one. We just, we just screwed up last it. time, so we only had. Uh, <laughs> we we somehow skipped it. So this this is one of those. You know, you go to the fast food restaurants and you'll see they've got these digital menus up on the screen. Yeah. <laughs> so here we've got there's a Mook Chicken all rights reserved little circle meal. There's a Big Mac all rights reserved meal. There's a Chicken McNuggets ten piece meal. But do you see what's in the middle there, Brian? Yeah. The the, the dollar bracket title bracket. <laughs> it's thirteen fifty. Uh. What is it? The dollar bracket title. It's so amazing that it's up there. I don't know if there's just supposed to be curly braces and they missed the shift or something. But the comments, folks, the comments are nonstop. Some of them I can't read because, <laughs> <laughs> I 
because it's, uh, you know, not necessarily safe for work, but it's like, you know, what the McBlank is happening to my muck menu. And oh my gosh, it's so good. It's <laughs> so, funny. Yeah. Also, the, the pricing is really high. I don't know who pays, you know, what is that? $13 for a, a McNugget meal or $10 for a cheeseburger, but that's a pricey burger. I guess it's a meal, includes a drink, but still, whatever. That's a lot. Yeah. Huh. <laughs> that's funny. Okay. Well, I have something that I was laughing like so hard at, and I'm not going to go through all of it, but it's um, it's 59 hilariously infuriating examples of user interfaces, um, and uh, I was like couldn't couldn't stop laughing. The 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 first one right off the bat. Please enter your phone number. It's just got a plus <laughs> sign. You just walk up. <laughs> um, and then the second one's actually my favorite. <laughs> Is a, you got to press it like seven million times to get your phone number yeah, to show yeah. up. <laughs> the um, Angry Birds version of a volume control. Um, so you just like pull it back and then shoot the ball to what volume you want. Oh, I love it. I, I want that actually. That would be fun. Um, but there's 59 of these that are just terrible. Please enter your phone number with a dial wheel. <laughs> A digital that sounds kind wheel. of fun, though. It's been so long since I. I kind of want to like, go out and just get an old phone just to do that. Yeah, um, a, a, a volume slider that's just like you have to like uh, make like it a level. level. Yeah, it's like a level. It slides the volume to like yeah. balance it out. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> is this your phone? <laughs> it's a phone number entry that just guesses your phone number, and you have to say if it's right or not. <laughs> anyway. These are, uh, we won't go through all 59, but, um, this is, these are worth a good laugh. Um, don't, it's probably not safe for work unless it's okay for you to be laughing at work. Um, there's nothing illicit there. It's just, <laughs> you know, you're not allowed to laugh at work. Well, this is work. This is not for fun. You're at work. Remember that. <laughs> uh, I had a manager once that like was sat right across from a long time ago that sat right across from me and Every time I glanced over, he was playing solitaire on his computer. Like, and like, I'm like, like six hours out of the day, every time I looked over, it was solitaire. Like, I, I want his job. <laughs> no, but anyway. All right. Brian, thanks a lot. You just ruined the next hour of productivity for me with this, this article. <laughs> anyway, I guess that wraps up all of our items. Uh, thanks, everybody, on the um, live stream for watching and everybody that watches it later. Super thanks to Pamela for showing up today. And thanks, Michael. Yeah. Thank you. Great to have Bye. you on the show, Pamela. Thank you.